in December 2020, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So, got, got it. Yes, yes. So, um, you'll start with um, these very interesting things. I've been following some of the developments going on in the region. And uh, if we talk from the geostrategic perspective, a lot has been going on um, internally and externally as well. But you know me, Talha, uh, I, I don't look within. There are a lot, many people talking about uh, Pakistan, Pakistan's foreign policy, defense policy, economic policy, uh, what politicians are doing, doing this and that. And uh, there are many people, there is a plethora of people who are maybe more learned and more experienced than you and I, who can talk on these subjects. And the purpose of this program, uh, the audience, is that we want to discuss issues which are otherwise not highlighted in the mainstream media, including by the strategic community. So I was, I came across these interesting developments. As you all know, recently the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Conference was held in Moscow, Russia. And uh, uh, Pakistan was also present over there. Its representatives, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Committee was there. We had a foreign minister over there. And uh, India's defense minister, uh, Rajnath Singh, was also there. There were some side meetings held with, uh, of each country with their allies and etc. And uh, Mr. Rajnath met with uh, the leaders, his counterparts, defense ministers from Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and Tajikistan. And they discussed means of uh, improving uh, defense co uh, cooperation amongst themselves. And uh, just to let you know that this is one aspect. This is like the defense prong, which was taking place in Moscow. And concurrently, there was another foreign policy prong led by Dr. Uh, Subramaniam Jayashankar, the external affairs minister. He held a meeting with the Kazakh foreign minister and Kyrgyz foreign minister. So as you may have noticed, Kyrgyzstan is a country which is figuring both in the foreign policy and the defense prongs of uh, India's uh, outreach to the SCO. And this is very important because uh, Kyrgyzstan is not only a country that has served as a base for many regional and extra regional powers, uh, it is also a country with which India has maintained uh, excellent cordial relations over the past decades, considerably more than Pakistan. And another interesting aspect is the fact that while there were routine statements about cooperation and this and that, at the same time, uh, China's very vibrant foreign minister, Mr. Wang Yi, he held a meeting with his, his uh, Kyrgyz president and both countries reaffirmed their commitment to supporting issues of each other's core national interests. And you must know that when we are talking about China, then the word core actually suggests that it is directly concerning the supreme national security interests of China in particular. So it appears what I've been able to deduce from reading various news and details emerging from these meetings that Kyrgyzstan is particularly caught in the crosshairs between India trying to overpower or challenge China's unique outreach with this country. And when we talk about Uzbekistan, Pakistan has good relations with Uzbekistan as well. But what about Kazakhstan? Now, Kazakhstan, as we all know, is not only a source of uranium, but that's just one aspect which we like to look into. If you remember in 2013, India had proposed, at that time it was the leadership of uh, Indian National Congress. 
the foreign minister at the time the external affairs minister salman khurshid he had proposed a 1500 kilometers long hydrocarbon pipeline on a north south axis with kazakhstan and the intent behind that was to present a counter an alternate to the turkmenistan afghanistan pakistan iran the tapi pipeline which pakistan is very adamant to fulfill and you know uh, when we talk about pakistan uh, one of our former army chiefs uh, general retired ashfaq parvez kiani when he was serving uh, he visited kazakhstan and he um, discussed with the leadership over there that the, the tapi pipeline is very essential for pakistan's interest so what we are seeing over here is that yes you hear about the indo pacific and asean and engagements in the pacific theater but what we have missed is that um, india and china are uh, drawing their attention more towards central asia and which is very interesting because pakistan right now as i have been able to understand is focusing on uh, africa and uh, the gulf so uh, this was uh, this is uh, what i found to be very interesting so kyrgyzstan over here this is a country which pakistan should be looking out into talha uh no doubt uh, the ingresses that are being made by the indians in the central asia and uh, now the chinese uh, even the chinese have been working on it since long so the desire to uh, uh, desire to exert the influence over car is uh, offered most important importance for both the countries absolutely so uh, so my uh, um, my i i'll initiate uh, my part of uh, this video session by commenting on the speech that was delivered by the prime minister imran khan yesterday at the un general assembly so uh, there were multiple uh, it was a commendable speech and there were multiple themes that i have identified uh, that pertains to uh, pakistan's external relations that that uh, that factored uh, uh, that were a part of his uh, that were a part of his commentary at the united nations so uh, he chided the united nations on how it has not been able to realize the promise it has made to the people of the world pakistan also uh, prime minister imran khan also talked about multilateralism about pakistan's support for multilateralism uh, and it is very important especially uh, given the context that we have seen uh, india at times flouting the multilateral norms uh in various regional organizations although uh since jay shankar uh, has become foreign minister uh, yes repeated this multiple times that uh india will be will be uh, focusing on multilateralism but the but the conduct that we have been observing since the last uh two three years it is uh, very dismal to say the least so uh and another 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 important thing is uh, as a person who has studied international relations i could identify that prime minister imran khan invoked dependency theory when he was talking about how the developing countries don't have 
adequate fiscal space. He talked about debt relief. So he was trying to make this uh, case about how the global north uh, and global south are interacting with one another in such a manner that the rich countries are getting richer and the poor countries are getting poorer. He talked about how the illicit finances are being laundered to rich countries by the corrupt elites. He talked about climate change. So climate change is another issue uh, which we have seen uh, gaining prominence in the current dispensation. It is uh, uh, gradually, uh, it is it is gradually gaining traction, and uh, uh, it is becoming a core part of our foreign policy narrative. And tell her this. And this is actually quite interesting because, um, forgive me for sounding ignorant, but uh, I must be honest over here. I'm one of those people who have not been able to adequately understand how climate change dynamics actually can impact national security and the foreign policy perspective, which you mentioned. And I think it's very good that uh, whoever drafted the speech of uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan, he factored this also because these are, uh, as I was watching one of your earlier webinars during the COVID lockdown days, these are one of the non-traditional security threats, uh, which we must be uh, adequately aware of. Yes, yes. Uh, we can perhaps dedicate another segment to this uh, to this topic about how climate change factors in uh, in the national security considerations. Uh, apart from that, uh, once again, on on the basis of this uh, Kashmir issue, uh, Kashmir factored prominently in Prime Minister Imran Khan's speech, and that is why the uh, Indian media is talking about how Imran Khan's UNGA 2020 speech was almost a replica of 2019 litany. So Kashmir uh, factored in his speech, he talked about how the fourth Geneva Convention is being violated by India. Uh, then he talked about Afghanistan. Yes, altering the demographics of an occupied territory. That was a very yes. interesting point. Yes. He talked about Palestine, uh, dampening those uh, notions that were uh, being floated in media and oh, by certain commentators that uh, Pakistan uh, is probably uh, after these Arab states, Pakistan will be the country that would uh, that would surprisingly uh, accept uh, Israel uh, as, 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 a, as, a, as a as a as a as a legitimate state. So uh, it it dampened all those uh, all those conspiratorial uh, views that were coming in the media. And Pakistan, Imran Khan reiterated that it is a principal position of Pakistan, and it is a consistent position of Pakistan that uh, we seek two-state solution in line with the uh, in line with the international agreements that have been done in the past, and we seek. Uh, this uh, current this is, is Israel-Palestinian uh, arrangement to revert back to the pre-1967 pre arrangement and uh, Al-Quds al-Sharif as the capital of United Contiguous uh, Independent Palestinian State. At the same time, uh, there are certain... Uh, uh, I, I, I was glad to hear this from uh, the Prime Minister of Pakistan that 
uh, he reposed, he concluded his speech by reposing his trust in the United Nations. And uh, he talked about how the UN remains the best legitimate forum. And he, all, he, and he, shocked, he talked about how it should be made fully responsive to deal with the world challenges. Uh, this coming at the time when countries like United States and even uh, other re regional powers, except for China, uh, even India has uh, at times berated the conduct of the United Nations and they have talked about how they have talked in the tone that suggests that United Nations has become more of an impediment rather than a problem solver. Uh, the tone of Prime Minister Imran Khan was uh, was uh, quite conciliatory in that aspect, and uh, he talked about how it should be made fully responsive to deal with the world challenges. So it was a good speech. Talha, uh, it's interesting which you mentioned because uh, I was one of those people who was gladly scrolling through Twitter and uh, trying to look at these uh, some people who are self-professed analysts and actually some. Uh, very senior analysts of good integrity who were jumping to conclusions and assuming that since some particular Arab Gulf countries have uh, decided to normalize relations with Israel, then that effect would automatically trickle down to Islamabad and it would be eventually forced to give a statement uh, appreciating the same and following the approach of uh, what some people were saying, this Sudan type of approach of indicating some sort of signals of joining. and. Another more interesting aspect, Talha, is that you mentioned about uh, reaffirming the belief on um, a two-state solution uh, based on the pre-1967 uh, arrangements. And have, did you notice that uh, the Prime Minister made a speech, Kuwait was the other country which reaffirmed and con uh, amplified the same statement in support of Palestine instead of going with the rest of the Gulf Cooperation Council. So I found that very interesting as well. So Pakistan and Kuwait are on the same page when it comes to uh, the issue of Palestine. Uh, I missed that. Uh, surprisingly, I'll go and look into it. And that that is what uh, factors into this. And speaking of uh, Israel, by the way, since we have come on this topic, um, I won't go into the details, but I, I think we are both are aware and a significant part of our viewers as well that uh, Bahrain, the UAE and Israel signed a peace accord in Washington, D.C. that was brokered by uh, President Donald Trump's administration. And uh, Netanyahu signed agreements. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu signed agreements with the uh, Emirati Foreign Minister Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed al-Nahyan and Bahrain's Foreign Minister Abdul Latif al-Zayani. And the interesting thing is that although Sudan has still not joined the bandwagon or the bandwagon effect has not actually materialized yet, Oman, interestingly, under its new leadership has ex uh, welcomed this development. And we are aware that uh, the late uh, Sultan of Oman, Sultan Qaboos, he was the first Arab ruler to actually open relations with Israel after Egypt and Jordan. So we know that Jordan and Egypt based in the extreme end of West Asia and North Africa were the countries which since the 60s 
were involved in direct wars with Israel, but uh, Oman was the country which was even perhaps one of the first uh, Arab countries which were not part of the traditional agreements which welcomed this agreement. And the current ruler, the successor of uh, late Sultan Qaboos, uh, he has expressed his resolve that he is going to uphold those policies. So we have Bahrain, UAE, Oman. These are three important GCC countries that have decided to normalize their relations with uh, Israel. And the geostrategic significance of these developments is by all means, you can go into a lot of depth, which I won't go into right now. But if you look at the location, we're talking about the Persian Gulf. We're talking about the Gulf of Aden. And these are some of the most important choke points of commercial trade, which connect the Western Indian Ocean with the Mediterranean via the Red Sea. So you already have Egypt, which is the controlling authority in the Suez Canal. Right. So you have the Red Sea, which is linking the trade with the Mediterranean. Egypt is part of the whole process. UAE has joined in. Oman has joined, uh, has already declared its support. And uh, some things which few people might have heard of. I was reading this very interesting uh, intelligence brief by a private French intelligence firm known by the name of Indigo Publications. They have this uh, website, intelligenceonline.com. It is a repository of very resourceful information, but you have to be sure that you are able to uh, try to corroborate some of the very distinct uh, sets of information mentioned over there. And they mentioned that Israel and the UAE both are actually trying to establish intelligence bases in Sokotra, which is an island of Yemen. So if you go into those military dynamics, so we have the arc, which is coming from Bahrain, UAE, Oman, Yemen, and then we have Egypt. So which country is left in between? You have Saudi Arabia, you have Sudan, and uh, these are the places where um, the, uh, the geostrategic competitor to these Arab countries, that is Turkey, is coming in. Now the dilemma for Pakistan is, that we have a big diaspora present in the Gulf and a bulk of our foreign remittances from overseas Pakistanis comes from the Gulf region. And the fact that uh, not only are the Gulf countries such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE uh, excellent brotherly relations with Pakistan, but also Turkey. So if we don't even look at the economic angle, we are looking at uh, a possibility in the future when uh, Pakistan will have to uh, suffer some sort of a squeeze between these uh, competing powers in the region. And for the Arabs, obviously, uh, I wrote this article for uh, your institute a few weeks ago that uh, in my personal assessment, uh, this arrangement is basically focused toward limiting a Turkish, perceived Turkish expansionism in the region. So all this, uh, you know, these uh, certain effects. But then this merits the question, Talhab. This merits the question, and I must add it over here for the sake of analytical neutrality, because I wouldn't just like to present my uh, core assertion that Turkey is the target. Why Bahrain? Bahrain has nothing or no sort of a dispute with um, Turkey. Bahrain is not involved in any sort of extra regional regime changes 
as the UAE leadership has done in Libya and elsewhere, such as Yemen. So why Bahrain? Bahrain's only issue in the region is Iran. So now we know that uh, since now Bahrain has actually joined the bandwagon, now we know that Iran is also one of the factors behind this arrangement. But we'll have to see to it. Everybody knows that uh, Bahrain is the little boy who gets pushed around by his big brother Saudi Arabia and the UAE whenever it needs be, just for that extra vote bank in the GCC. So this is what um, I think um, there are a lot of things to be followed over here from the foreign policy perspective. And as far as Pakistan's geostrategic interests are concerned, uh, we have to tread very carefully. Uh, it's interesting we haven't really <laughs> issued any statements. I don't know why. Uh, have you come across any statement by the Foreign Office commenting on any of these developments? Our foreign office is is uh, is mum on on these developments. We haven't uh, come up uh, in. Uh, we haven't. I, we haven't either opposed them or uh, spoke in favor of these developments, because uh, I think at this point of time these developments do not directly concern us, and it would uh, cause unnecessary controversies and direct uh, unnecessary attention on uh, on on Pakistan it is better that we focus on our uh, we have uh, this is the time that we should be focusing on Afghanistan we should be focusing on our uh, eastern border uh, at India we should be focusing on how to make China Pakistan economic corridor uh, functional rather than rather than unnecessary uh, speaking about uh, Middle Eastern politics. But the Prime Minister of Pakistan has already given uh, a, a given a policy statement yesterday uh, at the UN forum. Yes. Uh, that, that speaks for itself uh, where Pakistan stands on this issue. And uh, speaking of uh, Pakistan's stance on this issue. Yes, indeed, uh, the Prime Minister of Pakistan made it categorically clear about where we stand on the issue of Palestine. But Talha, isn't it beyond just Palestine also? Because fine, we have that issue as well. But when we look at Arab relations with countries in the Middle East and North Africa, we are also looking into two of the most important uh, seas which connect global trade, the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. So we're talking about cargoes coming from the Atlantic and they're joined to the Pacific via the Indian Ocean. And when we are trying to understand how the coming five or 10 years will uh, evolve into a framework where you could have a gang of Arab countries that are trying to uh, control these waterways in and much to the chagrin of countries such as Turkey, or maybe even China, because uh, if we talk about China, Turkey is an important outlet to the Mediterranean and towards Europe for China in the larger Belt and Road Initiative, which you very rightly mentioned. And uh, for that, Turkey, uh, China is also aware that it needs to build good relations with Arab Gulf countries, particularly Saudi Arabia. So do you think that in your view, if you're talking, I mean, just from your individual perspective, do you think that 
China would like to get involved uh, to the extent that economic interests or maritime trade in these waterways are not impacted due to these scuttles between the Arabs and Israelis on the one end and Turkey on the other? Or do you think that that is something which is uh, a dynamic which is uh, too unpredictable to be assessed at this point in time? I would go with the second uh, option okay. that you have uh, that you have just mentioned. The dynamic is too unpredictable, and it is not in China's uh, in China's hands. Uh, I think time uh, time will be a much better. Uh, sorry, let me repeat again. So uh, I would go with the. With, with with the notion that the situation is too dynamic, too unpredictable, and uh, I'm not, uh, I, I don't feel that I'm qualified to comment on this right now. Uh, but I think uh, we'll get to know about it in a much better manner uh, with the passage of time. Speaking of uh, waterways and the ocean. I believe you have something on the Indo-Pacific to share. Okay, okay. So yes, uh, uh, this is another topic that I wanted to uh, bring up uh, in our conversation. Uh, Germany uh, recently issued an Indo-Pacific strategy, and uh, by issuing this strategy. Uh, and surprisingly, this happened at the time when uh, the uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi had just wrapped up his uh, uh, European tour, and he was uh, he, he had just d uh, completed the Berlin leg of the tour. Exactly, he was trying to uh, repair his ties. And he went there to talk about uh, after post coronavirus pandemic, he was out uh, to uh, gauge a pulse of the European states. So, with the, the day after he left, Germany issued this uh, new Indo Pacific strategy. And uh, it's it suggests that Germany has recalibrated its approach towards China. This strategy talks about. Uh, goes to the extent that it's that it talks about uh, the enforcement measures that Germany is going to take. It yep. uses the terminology of enforcement. So I think it's uh, it's very assertive in that sense uh, because it's very assertive in that sense and it is a very uh, surprising change of tone. Uh, our, uh, earlier, Germany, German, Germany relationship with China was uh, more about economics and trade, but it seems that uh, it would now include uh, geopolitical interests. It would now include human rights and other uh, matters as well. Uh, and this strategy, uh, France was the first European country to issue uh, this uh, Indo. To issue Indo-Pacific strategy in 2019, it was a, before that it was uh, the United States that uh, uh, adopted an Indo-Pacific strategy in 2017. Now we have Germany, 
joining these other countries, other European, uh, joining US and France. So uh, the approach towards Indo-Pacific is being reassessed. I think, uh, yes, um, you absolutely uh, rightly mentioned about this uh, Indo-Pacific approach of uh, European countries. And the line which you've mentioned, I think that makes for a very catchy article headline in itself. Germany's recalibrations of relations with China. And keep in the fact that Germany, uh, within Germany, the internal politics, the German parliament has been debating about extending its troop deployment in Afghanistan. And that's been a very hotly contested issue with the opposition fiercely trying to uh, uh, bring down any and all efforts to further extend German troop presence in Afghanistan. And now it seems that with the issuance of this strategy, the Germans might be thinking that, hey, you know, we've uh, wasted a considerable amount of our time um, in the Middle East and uh, embroiled himself in Afghanistan and we've suffered so many casualties. We've become involved in a mess. We've tried to appoint a special envoy and bring the Taliban and the government to a negotiating table. Now it seems like, uh, you know, they're trying to move out from the Middle East and focus exclusively on South East and East Asia. And it would appear that when they also believe, you know, this is, this is very true that uh, the fact that Germany, apart from France, is also a European power, which believes in the unification of the Pacific and Indian Oceans. So they're actually trying uh, supporting the original vision of uh, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was the brains behind Indo-Pacific. And obviously, this camp includes the US uh, and these Quad countries, uh, India, Australia. And you have all these people at the same table. So it would appear that uh, if you have even two European powerhouses, and not necessarily the UK, because the U UK has been conspicuously silent toward the Indo-Pacific as of yet, it still maintains its own distinct approach to the region because it is mindful of the fact that countries which are former members of the Commonwealth, uh, including island countries, they might not have the same um, common understanding toward the region as France and Germany might have. So it would remain to be seen, but France and then now Germany. And Germany, interestingly, uh, as you mentioned in their paper, the Indo-Pacific paper, I happen to have read that document, one of the most important things which I read was, for me personally, the most important takeaway, that Germany intends to establish a center in Singapore. Now, Singapore is a very important anchor state in the Western uh, Pacific, and uh, that, that would whole belt uh, south of the uh, Malacca Strait. And Singapore is also the base uh, where... Uh, American operations and intelligence uh, initiatives in the Asia-Pacific region uh, from where they take place. And the fact that Germany's emphasis, continued emphasis in the document was to fight disinformation about developments in the region. I don't understand why disinformation is so important when it comes to the Indo-Pacific. Who is actually, what is the, where is the disinformation coming from? And that's when you realize that they're actually referring to China. They, um, this is my understanding. 
this is not something i'm throwing out there without uh, trying to interpret it thoroughly the disinformation which i personally believe is that they're talking about china's own national understanding about their what they claim is a legitimate presence in the south china sea and the development of islands and uh, exclusive economic zones in the region so how does that impact talha this is a question to you because uh, i i've been meaning to ask you this uh, you see china intends to export its ultimate objective behind bri is to develop europe as a market where it can throw its products so with germany and france coming to uh, the us camp and the japanese camp how 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 is the uh, geo economic initiative of china going to be fulfilled they uh, um, they are going to have to make a lot of amends they'll uh, they'll have to uh, make a lot of amends that's for sure but, and and the geopolitical but you are talking in terms of the geopolitical considerations that are uh, the, the relationship that china has with other asian countries but they are talking may i add uh, sorry to cut you off may, may i add that you mentioned about chinese foreign minister and state councilor bong yi store to europe the timing is very interesting i mean was that uh, it doesn't seem that the objectives behind the tour resulted in some sort of you know restraint that okay we can issue this policy later we'll think about it they went ahead and they pa- uh, passed that indo pacific strategy so what do you what, what would you say on that this one interesting article article in the south china morning post in which they have talked about uh, this the china was aware of this possible change in german policy uh i'm not aware never the, no, okay. yes thing yes south china morning post there is an article in which uh, uh, they have mentioned there is this line uh, which i can recall that there were indications that beijing was aware of the change in mm-hmm. uh, possible change in german policy but that didn't stop beijing uh, that didn't stop wangi from, from going ahead and uh doing a tour of other Europe, of european countries including germany and uh, uh but but i think that uh, the 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 political considerations the geopolitical considerations uh should uh, uh they they have they have uh, they have an impact on the economic considerations but th- th- in this case in this scenario i think it will be uh i don't want to go ahead and say that uh, the geopolitical considerations would trump the economic relations between both the countries so there is this awareness on uh, on on both sides and still uh, the activities are taking place the trade is taking place uh, in fact uh, the same article the south china morning post article in which this uh, i read this uh there they have attributed a statement to who uh, can china's ambassador to germany who have said that uh china germany relationship had ha- had gone beyond bilateral ties to strategic influence and uh, they have talked about how beijing is re- ready to intensify strategic cooperation with germany and both sides should resume dialogue at all levels to strengthen mutual political trust so uh i i think there there is there is a playing field 
on which both sides are uh, are uh, interacting with each other engaging with each other uh, and there is this Ger germany's german strategy to indo pacific is more of a bandwagon thing uh, i don't know uh, i i i have to read it more comprehensively but i i've i've read somewhere that even this strategy german indo pacific strategy is more of a disparate sort of uh, uh, disparate sort of development that uh, won't 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 affect the realities on ground in in a major uh, in a major way. So so basically, uh, you know, this is interesting. So basically, you are also of the personal belief, and I might have that same belief that this could be just a cosmetic arrangement, just something to put it out there to maybe uh, pacify. Um, america and its allies who have been wanting yes absolutely absolutely the <laughs> this is also one of the reason that is being floated around that perhaps because uh, uh, merkel was giving a tough time to uh, president trump so this is perhaps one of the attempt to uh, gain currency and get in the good books of us once again because germany was like the most vocal uh, as a european country germany germany was most vocal about what the united states was doing wrong absolutely so uh, talking uh, we've talked about um, the indo pacific and uh, the indo part of the pacific is always something which interests me and i talha would uh, gladly agree that i <laughs> have to the concept of yes. pacific we've long i have long maintained that um, the indian ocean can never be uh, pacified you know the pacification of the indian ocean that is a ridiculous concept because it actually contradicts new delhi's own core assertion that the sagar initiative security and growth for all in the region the sagar mala project in which india is trying to establish a cultural bond between countries of the indian ocean according to shared cultural heritage and all of that mumbo jumbo which the external affairs ministry loves to throw out and the fact of the matter is that the culture of indian ocean countries east africa uh, island states india the arab gulf countries is so unique it is so different and distinct from those in the pacific countries that uh, it, uh, it it just very clearly tells you how strategically confused india is when it comes to you know trying to establish its own uh, net security provider status in the indian ocean but then it says ki okay the pacific is also part of it so so you either have to discard the whole indian ocean thing together or you have to look at it through a collective lens speaking of which tala let me tell you i came across some things which i have been adding together for a while over the past two weeks i wanted to actually combine it into the form of an article for your institute but you know i decided that it would uh, become such a mishmash that it would be better if we include it in our uh, discussion over here in this show um i'll take you to this recent development in which an indian navy warship the ins talwar undertook refueling with uh, a us navy replenishment tanker the yukon in north arabian sea you know obviously north arabian sea according to the maritime doctrine of pakistan is its primary area of interest 
so we have an indian navy warship being refueled by a us navy tanker in an area of pakistan's primary security concern and this took place just this month in september under the logistic exchange memorandum of agreement the limoa as i i abbreviated so what is the yukon exactly you now in the indian media has been a buzz they've been trying to present it as you know there is indo us naval cooperation in the north arabian sea and blah 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 but actually the fact of the matter is that the yukon is not part of any um, battleship command but rather it is part of uh, a logistics a military uh, a sea lift and air lift command which uh, is actually just intended to uh, replenish and refuel ships uh, littered across the uh, different combatant areas of responsibilities so yukon has been part uh, this particular uh, replenishment tanker which refueled the indian warship uh, it is currently as of june 2020 it is deployed to the fifth fleet area of operations which falls under us navy uh, central command the navcent which is headquartered in bahrain now this is one aspect so you keep this in mind that in september 2020 we have for the first time a central command ship of the us replenishing an indian warship now it is interesting from the angle because india and the us do not have an interoperable relationship in the central command it is exclusively limited within the indo pacific command within indo pacific yes so this is this is an a prime example that in 2020 the us has officially initiated the pacification of indian ocean by trying to include a component gradually of indian navy in the central command AOR and central command is one which is exclusively focused towards the middle east iran pakistan afghanistan and these uh, arab gulf countries so this is actually also a message and we saw reports uh, since the past year or so that india has been trying to uh, appoint a naval liaison officer in uh, navcent bahrain unprecedented which begs the question what about pakistan Uh, why is uh, pakistan um uh, silent on the fact that while india gets to be included in the central command area of operations why doesn't pakistan look toward the indo pacific command and uh, you know make a sort of fit for tat arrangement so it has visibility of what is going on and uh, okay and uh, now this is uh, one aspect the refueling of the indian navy tanker so if we go a few months before this and i love making timelines in june 2020 the us navy patrol squadron vp16 they assumed responsibility of command uh, commander task group 57.2 which is also known as the al udaid air group it is part of task force 57 in the fifth fleet aor what is aludeed aludeed is that uh, famous air base in uh, near doha qatar so vp16 a naval intelligence and reconnaissance squadron based in qatar it came from the pacific 
and i'll tell you why this is very important and this is something which i believe is going to be the highlight of this inaugural episode of ours so vp16 comes to central command and why is task force 57 important because the vp16 squadron includes p8 poseidon these boeing aircraft which carry out naval intelligence collection and signals collection uh, in their area of operations and it is currently part of task force sentinel which is responsible for stability in the middle east and we all know the fifth fleet area of operations nav set includes arabian gulf the persian gulf gulf of oman red sea parts of the indian ocean but interestingly vp16 is now in central command fifthly but concurrently components of it are also supporting task group 67.1 in the sixth fleet area of operations which comes under us naval forces europe in the mediterranean sea so you have an arrangement over here that naval intelligence squadron of the us it is present in central command and some of its elements are present in the mediterranean so we talked earlier about you know if you're building an ark and you have a us component mediterranean you have the indian ocean and you have all this circle encirclement going on and a complete interconnectedness of the us navy uh, in from the mediterranean to the indian ocean and you might think that i'm only referring and talking about the us over here well actually not the interesting thing is that why is vp16 of particular importance that i considered it important to include in this episode well for a matter of fact in back in october 2018 so we are talking around 2 years ago this very particular squadron vp16 was part of the fourth and seventh fleet area of responsibilities which means fourth fleet is in the was in the southern is in the southern atlantic latin america etc etc seventh fleet as we know is part of the pacific under uh, indo indo pacific command so they were in the south atlantic pacific and now vp16 gradually came to indian ocean and mediterranean sea in october 2018 vp16 held a meeting with indian navy officers at the indian naval air station 312 it is one of their which houses one of their squadrons at indian naval station rajali in tamil nadu and why did they meet uh, why did they hold a meeting over there because by that time india had already purchased and deployed maritime patrol aircraft and intelligence aircraft of the poseidon p8 poseidon's neptunes customized versions for enhanced uh, intelligence collection in the region and in 2018 what the us uh, did personnel from vp16 they held meetings with indian naval air station 312 to discuss advanced maritime domain awareness and what they did was they actually held uh, cordial meetings between subject matter experts and they discussed about how they are going to further promote interoperability and get better visibility into the western indian ocean region which i don't no need to go into the details i've already discussed in writing for cscr many a times and uh, just for some viewers who may not be familiar with the particulars of uh, the p8 poseidon aircraft 
they are intended exclusively to be for maritime intelligence so you can expect uh, flying over islands and the waters and all of that the blue expanse but earlier this year chief of defense staff india's chief of defense staff general bipin rawat he disclosed to the press that india had actually used poseidons for intelligence and reconnaissance and not only uh, uh, on china in the doklam crisis which is still underway but also after pulwama which happened last year to for intelligence collection on pakistan so if you see what where i'm going with this and i'm just going to leave it at that without going into further details you have aircrafts and squadrons which uh, uh the indian and american naval intelligence squadrons have interoperability in the western indian ocean they are those same aircraft are used for intelligence collection on pakistan and china and concurrently now those same aircraft are being used against certain middle eastern targets such as iran and also in the mediterranean perhaps against turkey but that would be a far fetched assertion so this is very very interesting so we missed the point that you are having elements of the us navy from the pacific being brought into central command and you can have this uh, fantastic fusion of naval intelligence between the indian and us navies in the region and you add to that mix favorable conditions with the certain arab gulf countries normalizing relations with israel and you have voila that is what you have for the us navy in the region and uh, this is something which um, i believe china needs to be very mindful of and we i we can expect some sort of uh, maritime posturing by china as it usually does once or twice per year it sends its uh, nuclear arm um, uh, nuclear submarines into the indian ocean and the indians are going all bonkers over it so uh, okay yeah uh, i would add uh, i would add to uh, what you have said uh, you talked about the north arabian sea uh, you must be very well aware of that india and japan have india japan have started their uh, non contact naval drills a three day exercise in the north arabian sea yes the free and open indo pacific strategy Uh, the manifestation of that uh, the free and open indo-pacific strategy in uh, the north in the western indian ocean and more more specifically in the north arabian sea wow so and the fa- fact so. of the means that india uh, japan already has its uh, naval logistics base in djibouti in east africa so you can see where this is all going so if let me ask you tala you make an arrangement you and i make an arrangement that uh i scratch your back you scratch mine you can get replenished by my ships but i can also get replenished by your ships yes yes uh yes so don't we know that don't we know that uh, india has uh, replenishment facilities in oman in the dukum port etc couldn't they be possibly used by the us navy in the future Fairly, there are many examples. You can see where we could go with this, but the point remains that this is something which we'll need to factor into. That the the key word over here, the crux of the whole discussion is maritime reconnaissance and naval intelligence. This 
is the main takeaway from what is happening in the western indian ocean and this has obviously got nothing to do with uh, political agreements between arab leaders etc etc this is pure militarization of the western indian ocean and i would request some of the viewers who might be wondering who the heck i am uh, i would encourage you to visit this my uh, perspective paper on the cscr website i wrote uh, about how the west Uh, militarization of uh, uh, western indian ocean by the uh, us and india can uh, compel certain regional states to um, uh, uh, carry out a nuclear build up in the high seas something which is absolutely undesirable and it goes against various united nations conventions as well so, so uh, okay okay so i would like to add one thing here yeah. uh for for the viewers uh, zaki has an unparalleled grasp on 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 multiple subjects and more most importantly zaki can comment with authority on uh, on maritime security issues so i would encourage you all to go and read zaki's paper i have made this case different places that uh whatever work there is on cscr's website if you if you want if you are interested in learning more about what's happening in the maritime domain we need to read zaki's papers he is he is he has uh, always come up with some fresh perspectives some very lucid insights that uh, that are quite uh, that even the most seasoned uh, commentators even the most seasoned watchers of of the the indian ocean region uh, in in fact in the pacific and now he's talking about the central command he's bringing mediterranean as well so even the most seasoned uh, maritime domain experts uh, uh, cannot comment on things with such authority and would have such grasp that he uh, uh, he displays in his uh, writing so zaki i would Talha, uh, I I don't know if you can see me blushing, but you know I think I'm too dark for you to be able to see me blushing. <laughs> Thanks a lot. So, uh, you're welcome. So there there is uh, one question that I would like to ask from you, uh, particularly because we are talking about uh, about uh, about 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 the naval component, about uh, the the maritime security architectures. So, uh, do you think that? Uh, that that a strategy of uh, distant maritime power projection can work for india uh, particularly uh, if you see in the context of what what's happening at ladakh uh, uh, it has prompted some think tankers and some former uh, establishment people in uh, delhi to come up with this 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 proposition that uh, we need to offset china militarily in indian ocean uh although i understand even uh, we can uh, debate on it uh, how 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 feasible is 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 this kind of how feasible is this uh, arrangement of of setting china, china militarily in indian ocean but such opinion is not unwarranted if you see because delhi uh, has due to its irresponsible not only irresponsible but also irredentious claims uh and even uh, political actions in kashmir and ladakh has resulted in a recalibration of china's approach towards the line of actual control so china now effectively uh, controls around 1000 square kilometers of territory depths and plains area around pangam 
Peninsula, uh, which India India claimed that it is on the western side of line of actual control. So th th this is prompting some people in Delhi to come up with this ideas that Delhi needs to offset China militarily in uh, in the in, in in the maritime domain. So what what do you think about this? Uh, uh, I would like to hear you on this. Well. Um... Uh, out uh, out of intellectual humility, I would uh, repeat what you mentioned on, on a particular topic a while ago that um, some of the aspects of it are too unpredictable to be assessed at this point in time. But what I can, some of the uh, very minute aspects which I can maybe try to get a grasp on is that um, let's for a, for a hypothetical scenario, and I love engaging in hypothetical scenarios. Let's assume that India goes ahead and it green signals its intent to offset China militarily in the Indian Ocean, as you said, they have preferred. Obviously, for that to materialize, India would not risk a unilateral action, but it would try to seek a consensus from forums such as the Indian Ocean Rim Association, the IORA, which is not only a declared and accredited part of uh, materializing the Indo-Pacific concept according to the U.S. Department of Defense and State Department, uh, but also the fact that UAE is presently chairing IORA. And when we talk about India trying to make its way specifically against China in the Indian Ocean, the Arab countries have their own trade and foreign policy dynamics with the Chinese and when it comes to big money, countries such as the UAE and Saudi Arabia are not going to let anyone shy Beijing away from making investments and feeling safe and secure in the region. And I think this is one of the reasons why um, it's publicly acknowledged that Pakistan does have an important role to play in trying to further cement relations between Beijing and uh, the GCC. And when we talk about that, uh, there is also another factor which is very important, and that is island countries. Now, we all know recently countries such as Maldives, India is extensively involved over there in disaster relief operations. Why? And even the, the oil spill uh, near Mauritius. And why is India involved in these uh, posturing? Because it wants to assure these countries that whenever you are in trouble, we are there for you. We are here to uh, act as a shield. And in exchange for that, they do expect that the diplomatic uh, baggage they will gain will help them to uh, assert some sort of uh, uh, initiatives which may not be desirable for China in the future. But obviously, that would be very uh, limited thinking. So as far as uh, you know, maneuvering against China in the Indian Ocean is concerned, uh, let me again use the terminology of geography because that's where geostrategy comes in. I don't think that's possible in the Western Indian Ocean for now because of the uh, Arab and East African dynamic involved. But I do see that happening in the Eastern Indian Ocean to a certain extent because that is where you have uh, the Bay of Bengal and you have the Andaman Islands, Andaman and Nicobar Islands you have uh, exercises taking place, a passage exercise taking place uh, recently. Uh, and India is, the Indian Navy is much more potent in the Eastern Indian Ocean as compared to the West. But this merits the question. 
is india going to or does it intend to offset china the eastern indian ocean or the western indian ocean now this is quite a, uh, a difficult uh, answer to give because if you're talking about directly hitting china's interest then yes the eastern indian ocean the strait of malacca the choke point and all of that usual talk that is going to hit china but at what cost you see india uh in the, uh, i was going to mention this in this session also uh the indian foreign minister jayshankar recently held discussions with leaders of asean india wants to develop a further five year plan of cooperation with asean countries so uh, it's going to be very risky to you know try to storm over asean leaders and go all out against china because they'll obviously be going back the member countries of the asean they are very uh, they're known to be uh severely against uh, regional aggression and uh, alliance formations uh, and then obviously in the western indian ocean you have another chinese interest which will hit china where it hurts the most and that is the cpec project in gwadar but i ask you now it is a counter question has uh, the indian strategic community made it clear that the uh, to offset china militarily are they actually talking about the eastern theater or the western theater i don't have particularly have an answer to that and until we're actually sure at on which trajectory they're uh, hinting at uh, it would be quite difficult to make an assessment okay so uh, because this east west uh, peripheries there are two different uh, these uh, these there are two different ways of uh, looking at uh, the, the eastern aspect and the western aspect as you have mentioned so there there there, there have been certain uh, things that the certain developments that have come up in the media and there have been uh, good uh, good commentaries on uh, these developments uh, online as well this some people have talked about uh, that uh, to deter china india uh, needs to make a sea denial complex in the andaman islands uh, because andaman are in the on the eastern side and likewise they have proposed that uh, not proposed but okay, i have read this development so a very recent development india is planning to make a uh, 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 planning the seed denial complex thing in the Lakshadweep that is on the western uh, periphery, uh, the the Arabian uh, the uh, uh, the Western Indian Ocean and yeah. North Arabian Sea side, not North Arabian Sea side. Uh, in fact, uh, more more to the south, more to the south, but Arabian Sea. So. Uh, they have been thinking about developing the sea denial complex to deter china there uh andaman and nicobar is a strategic outpost to uh, monitor china's naval activity in the eastern indian ocean and uh, they are developing the, this integrated sur surveillance network strengthening the anti access capabilities in the andamans uh and the, the analysts believe that it i mentioned this in uh, that profile i made of uh, lieutenant general manoj pandey first yes yes you did about how why he was brought in to improve and fast track um, uh, military infrastructure in andaman and nicobar yes 
so they are saying that it would help protect uh, india's tactical leverage in the regional seas but uh, sea denial assets could be of little values because uh, china's uh, naval deployments are mostly outside india's uh, territorial waters yes so it it doesn't directly concern china china won't won't uh, feel any sort of threat by these uh, uh, sea denial capabilities in near the andaman acha another thing uh, why the sea denial strategy is unlikely to uh, work on the western side the pakistan china nexus uh because as of now as of now uh even if this is a challenge it doesn't yet involve a physical threat to indian assets uh the chinese navy uh not to my knowledge it it has uh, it is it is clearly uh, i haven't come across any such development in which i have read that there is any entanglement of sorts uh in in the arabian seas um Although China has expanded its engagement with the Pakistan Navy, it has participated in a number of bilateral, multilateral exercises of the Macron Coast. But uh, there, there is no, uh, there is. Uh, I think that the th- threat perception has not uh, morphed up to that level that India needs to uh, implement a sea denial strategy, a robust sea denial strategy on the western side. And sea denial strategy is also not feasible. because uh, uh it, it is generally generally frowned upon the seas are uh, it is it is the seas are widely considered to be part of global commons um making sea denial complexes you are uh, uh in some way or another you are giving an you are uh, securitizing the waters unnecessarily so it doesn't give a go- good impression so up uh, other than sea denial uh, architectures the analysts are coming up with proposals of distant power projections they are talking about how indian navy can keep, keep a sustained presence in the western pacific uh, that is the space that beijing dominates and and uh, that is uh, that is important because uh, if we just look at that focus uh, you mentioned about these various uh, uh, tactics and procedures through which the indian navy can try to um engage in sea denial and uh, you know try to uh, or completely uh, try to subvert uh, chinese uh, free uh, freedom of uh, naval operations in the region and i i think we have to bring general bipin rawat the chief of defense staff statement uh, many months ago in which he said that um, you see india has yet to theaterize its uh, military commands and integrate them and he mentioned that you know he it was actually quite uh, awkward the term he used a peninsular command near prala <laughs> and you know on the goa side so they, he was actually talking about integrating the western and eastern seaboards which many retired indian <laughs> navy veterans also were saying that this guy he has completely lost his mind he doesn't know what he's talking about and you're limiting the um, indian posturing to a peninsular approach but um, you you see the problem is india enjoys 
and it has that freedom and flexibility to flex its muscles in the western indian ocean because how many challenges are there are challenges are there it it only limits itself just before east africa and you know just in the southern indian ocean and it is very mindful about uh, arab and uh, us naval central presence in the north arabian sea so whatever it does over there cannot be without washington's approval there is no sensitive choke point and it can never ever risk trying to disrupt any sort of stability in the red sea so it doesn't go there but now in the eastern indian ocean as you mentioned near andaman the strait of malacca you have an aggressive us navy you have japanese patronage and under their shadows it is very easy for new delhi to say okay for example you're going to conduct so called freedom of navigation operations fon ops in the area which is actually meant to just poke at china so we will send one or two ships as well so i think that's the only extent they'll ever go to unless and until the infrastructure for uh, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance and forward posting in andaman is complete you mentioned about lakshadweep in the western indian ocean do you already know that indian navy has two forward operating bases over there yes yes but but yet despite having those bases for many years have you ever seen regional countries such as pakistan and anyone else trying to factor that into their threat calculus no because we haven't witnessed that sort of assertive posturing or aggressiveness as we do recently under the patronage of uh, us and japan so i think that these talks about offsetting china militarily this is absolutely impossible for india to pursue unilaterally except and until if it has some sort of an alliance with um, op- uh, functional alliance with japan australia is, has clearly said that they are not going to in, con- engage in any sort of military signaling except diplomatic and politically so they are out you have japan the new prime minister is in he wants to develop relations my profile for prime minister yoshihide suga will be out for cscr soon inshallah and uh, he he wants to improve relations with china so that leaves just the us and obviously to the us also to what extent escalation dynamics to what extent will the us try to risk beijing's ire that remains to be seen yes uh, so uh, coming to uh, coming to the reference of bipin rawat bipin rawat uh, <laughs> he talked about uh, his vision to his vision to uh, make sort of some, some sort of peninsular arrangement and integrating the east and the west <laughs> okay so jokes aside uh, the, the 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 humor is quite evident uh, when we talk about bipin rawat so see he 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 was talking about uh, the peninsular command but my, my i am talking about a much more toned down version uh, some people believe that uh, india needs to develop uh, uh, the people who are more pr- pragmatic uh, who are more pr- pragmatic they are saying that in, in india need to increase the naval operations east of the malacca and 
they want to they should develop uh, india should develop a rapid cryo service expeditionary capability even that i believe it's 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 it's, it's a far fetched kind of uh, notion expeditionary capability in the indian ocean region let alone let alone a bigger claim that we should make a peninsular command so uh, there is this dart of realization that uh, china has marshaled the resources technology and political will over the past two decades to strengthen and modernize the rise of pla in nearly every aspect quote and quote these are the words china has marshaled the resources technology and political will over the past two decades to strengthen and modernize the pla in nearly every aspect these are the words of the pentagon uh, uh annual china military power report that was released recently uh there is this dart of realization in delhi that uh, uh they have not been able to they, they have not been able to follow up uh on 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 the on on the on the doctrine that they have they, they developed to uh pro uh, proactive uh what what was it proactive offense doctrine cold start yes so they have not been able to operationalize that it's it's been more than uh, more than a decade which had a naval version as well so naval version as well and tala so, that's actually uh, uh, sorry let me add please over here just now because mm. that is a fantastic point you've made you see that's a doctrinal contradiction if you've noticed the indian navy doctrines that came in 2007 onward 2009 the Uh, in which india formally announced itself as the net security provider blah 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 and they also they were they already confined themselves to the indian ocean but now they have actually been thrown into the concept ke look indian ocean is just one part there is also the pacific they haven't uh, uh, you know they haven't been uh, able to actually get a proper grasp of the the huge scope involved as far as you know the conduct of military operations because when a war planner sitting in uh, the naval headquarters of india when he is looking at the indo pacific he has to take into account the region spanning from red sea to for example you can talk about the easternmost shores of japan or uh, you know the philippines so they don't have the assets and talking of rawat <laughs> he said we don't we, we don't need an aircraft carrier also so how how do you them <laughs> to go into expeditionary mode also theek hai so yes there are so many things they are into they are they are doctrinally confused and the only thing they are very assertive about and very certain about also to a ridiculous and delusional extent is their political you know uh, bandwagoning around washington and tokyo so again i think that's a very good point yes precisely uh, they have been jumping the boats for so long it's been happening since the last two at least since the last two decades this has been happening this is this is a continuous thing they don't get the hang of thing and they go to another level <laughs> and then they go to another level Uh, uh this is very important there is this uh, they they don't realize it but there is this lack of political will they are not they 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 don't 
there is no unanimity uh, as far as as their defense establishment is concerned they, they they are confused about how to deal with china and uh, some are favoring diplomatic options other are saying that we should counter them in himalaya some are saying that we should go and counter them in indian ocean so uh, we perhaps we can uh, schedule this uh, this topic for some other time but there is this uh, interesting paper that was recently published by carnegie uh, the author was arzan tarpor and he talked about india's uh, military offensive capabilities and he has he, he has criticized it was it's quite a critique uh, of of how uh, the as far as the indian military strategy is concerned so th- that gives you a glimpse of uh, of uh, what 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 how of of the disparity between the 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 reality and the claims that are being made by the policy makers in delhi absolutely and uh, i think uh, with that we have reached the conclusion of our inaugural session uh talha it's been quite a roller coaster uh i wasn't aware of how this would uh, progress over time but i think uh, this has been quite an interesting wrap up of what we consider at a individual and personal levels to be some of the important geostrategic developments in the region um so from talha and myself i'd like to thank the audience for tuning in and uh, we can't promise this to be uh, we can't define a periodic uh, um, session for this but uh, we are hoping to turn this into a fortnightly series and we hope uh, for that uh, i'm not going to <laughs> ask you to click on any particular buttons that's not me so if you're uh, in any sort of updates just log into that url you have if you're not well then you know it doesn't really matter so we like to discuss these issues and um, talha it was wonderful to uh, listen from you your perspective and i think this needs to be uh, encouraged more and more and uh, we need uh, we needed this and we uh, someone has to look into these uh, less highlighted aspects of uh, foreign policy defense and economics which uh, and the political aspect which are not uh, really covered in the mainstream media thanks uh, talha for your time and thank you to the audience in particular for tuning in uh, until next time assalam alaikum and allah hafiz from me allah hafiz allah hafiz everyone allah hafiz